Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest, my colleague and friend, Ed Jastrom. Ed is the Director of Financial Planning at Heritage Financial. And if there's a credential or a certification in our industry that a financial planner should have, Ed definitely has it. He does a great job for our clients. And this week, he's coming in hot because he's found a lot of financial planning advice online that he thinks is just misinformed, mistaken, and wants to make sure that you're not being caught up in it. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Ed. Thanks, Sammy. Thanks for having me and having this discussion. You're you're right. I am coming in hot. This stuff gets me fired up. You know, there's so much bad or misinterpreted advice out there about investments and tax planning. And when I come across it, whether it's on Twitter or YouTube or just a conversation I overhear somewhere, uh, it definitely you know gets me going. My ears perk up. Uh, I go home after work and I tell my wife, you know, how terrible the information was. We have a conversation about it. So I think I should start off the podcast by apologizing to her for bringing home this stuff all the time and making her listen to it. But in any case, hopefully, uh, hopefully clients and, and other people listening to this have, uh, have the patience as well to, to hear me out. I think there's a lot of good stuff to talk about because some of it is exaggerated, crazy, easy to understand that it's, you know, something that shouldn't be advice that one follows. But there's a lot of bad advice out there, too, that has some truth to it. And I think that's what makes it harder to distinguish, you know, what, what's really going on? Who do you really believe? And hopefully we can pick that apart a little bit. Today. Yeah, let's get into it. What's uh, what's on your mind? The first thing that I thought we should talk about is something that I was seeing a lot recently, particularly on Twitter. And I don't know what was driving it. Maybe politics, maybe tax reform, but I was seeing a lot the comment that you shouldn't use a 401k or an IRA, really no retirement accounts at all. Basically, if you use a 401k or an IRA, you're placing a big gamble on where tax rates are going. Uh, the government's going to take your money in the future. You don't know what's going to happen. So just don't use the 401k or IRA at all. That was being blasted on Twitter recently, and you know, so that's don't one don't where, use don't use a, a guaranteed tax break now and tax deferred growth because your crystal ball and concerns about future tax rates is unclear. But you know, it's got to turn out worse. So just forego all the today's benefits. That and that's what's so irksome about that comment, right? There's a, a tiny grain of truth in it, in that we don't know what the tax regime will be in the future. And even if the tax regime doesn't change materially from what it looks like today, we don't know what each individual's tax situation will look like. But on the face of it, like you said, that's if you don't use a retirement plan because you don't know what the future looks like, you know, you're, you're giving away so much certainty of things that we do know today. We do know that you can get tax deferred or tax free compound growth. 
We do know that in many cases, you can get employer matches to retirement plans that are free money. We do know that having retirement plans really helps with behavioral aspects of investing. If you're contributing on a regular basis from your payroll, that when the market is up and down, it, it keeps you disciplined to invest on a regular basis and dollar cost average. There's so many advantages that it just seems that there's far more things in the plus column than in the minus column. I'm not sure what the future is going to bring. The government's going to, you know, take my money. It, it just seems totally irrational to not take advantage of what is there for us with 401ks, IRAs, Roth IRAs, plans for self-employed individuals. There's a, a lot of opportunity to save on income taxes today to get growth and to take advantage of what these plans have to offer. I just can't imagine that somebody wouldn't take advantage of plans that are available to them. And I, I think going beyond that, you know, one of the bigger mistakes that we see business owners make is they're not doing enough with sophisticated retirement plan design to minimize the tax bite in their higher earning years. And the, you know, the, the extension of, of what you're saying too is you just because tax rates may be higher in the future doesn't necessarily mean your tax rate personally will be higher in the future in retirement. And using some of these retirement savings vehicles now when you are in your higher earning years or you know going to a Roth when you're not in your higher earning years for tax-free growth is uh, the time when you need the, the break the most. And then down the road, you may have the opportunity through good financial planning and um, you know working with your CPA to withdraw from these retirement accounts at an attractive rate. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're going to be pulling them out at these horrible rates down the road. You you can plan around that uh, with some uh, you know work in the fourth quarter. I absolutely agree with you. You made me think of two more things and then we can put this one to bed I think, but the first one is what you said about you know business owners and creating the best available plans during high income years. You know, if you use tax advantage retirement plans, if that saves you on taxes now, that increases the amount you can invest even more because you have more dollars from the tax savings to invest. So you know talk about compound growth. That that's one point that comes to mind. And, you know, the other is what you said about kind of the future of, you know, your personal tech situation, creative planning. I think one of the best things we can do as advisors with our clients is to create opportunities for flexibility. If you have an investment portfolio with different tax buckets of, you know, non-retirement brokerage accounts, some tax deferred money, potentially some tax-free money in Roth, that's going to give you more options for the future about how you spend your capital, how you gift your capital, how you save it for the next generation for your heirs. So not using one of those vehicles that's available to you is potentially reducing flexibility and choices in the future. And I, sure. I think that's just a poor decision. So yep. like I said, let's put this one to bed. Well, I think item number one on Ed's list, ignore the advice to ditch a 401k or an IRA or other retirement account. It's ridiculous. Move on. What's number two, Ed? Another one that we actually hear quite a bit is 
not to use a 529 college savings plan because if you use it, it will lower your financial aid. This one comes up a lot. It's technically true. Right. It's in the category of like, there's something to it, but you're really overstating it. Exactly. It's, it it can be repeated and it will be repeated because it's an accurate statement in, in most instances, but it's overemphasized in a way that really turns it into um, something that I think it's overreacted to perhaps, or um, not understanding the whole picture. Yeah. So, so explain why get, get into the details. Yeah. So when you look at how the government presently determines whether someone's eligible for financial aid, the kind of first part of it is something called the EFC or the expected family contribution. That's basically looking at the assets that you have, the income that you earn, and then looking at those figures to determine in the government's view, how much of the college costs for your child should you pay out of pocket versus what might you be eligible for from eight. So when you look at the components of the EFC, it's income and assets. There's other things like the size of your family and, and a, you know, a few other questions that go into it, but it's most, mostly income and assets. So 529 plans that are owned by a parent do count as assets in that formula, but they only count up to a maximum of 5.64%, call it 6%. So imagine that you've saved, I don't know, $100,000 for a child in a 529 plan, and you're starting to figure out whether you might be eligible for eight or not. The most that $100,000, a six-figure 529 plan saved could potentially, quote unquote, reduce your aid is about six grand. So that, that's kind of point one. Point two is your income counts a lot more in these formulas than your assets. So high income earners in particular might be kind of laser focused in on this, don't use a 529 plan because it's going to count against you. But it's really your income that matters a lot more. So for high income earners, the consequences might be that whether you have anything saved or not, your income really might just already kind of reduce or eliminate the, the aid you're potentially going to get. The, the third piece, I think, is that, you know, what is aid? If you ignore saving for a 529 plan to try to get more aid, you're probably getting that aid in loans, which have to be paid back and have interest, and that interest can compound and be very costly. So you could be just exchanging the ability to save and earn tax-free compound interest today and instead have a debt to pay later. So there's a lot of it that just doesn't kind of make sense when you start to pick it apart. It does vary a lot from person to person. It does make a big difference on the size of your family, how many kids in college you might have at the same time. And, you know, the, the best way to kind of play around with it and look at it if somebody really wanted to see what difference does a balance in a 529 plan make, 
you know, go to the tool and, and see what it says. You know, there's a really good, easy to use tool on the website, finaid.org, F-I-N-A-I-D.org. There's an EFC calculator right there. You can see for yourself what difference having a 529 plan savings makes. But if someone can save for a 529 plan and meet their other goals, and if one of their goals is to help their child pay for college, not have that burden be substantially in loans, I don't think the argument of don't save because it might lower your aid holds a lot of merit in most instances. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of 529 plans, and I know that you are as well. And if I could put in a room all of my clients over the you know last 21 years who regretted having too much in a 529 plan, and I could put in my room all the clients over the last 21 years who regretted not having enough, um, one room would be empty. The other room would be overflow, and uh, I, I'd need to find extra parking for those folks. So item number two, don't get overly concerned about 529s and how they're going to impact financial aid for college. We're off to a good start. What's number three, Ed? Number three, kind of changing the tempo a little bit. So our first two items you know, fall into the realm of, uh, you know, tax planning, tax savings, taking advantage of some of these account types. Changing up a little bit. This, uh, the third item is the idea that if you want to improve your credit score, you should keep a balance on some of your credit cards. I'm, I'm actually a little surprised. Ouch. That I still is that for, is that for real? Because I feel like there's a good amount of information out there on, you know, on credit scores and, how to increase your credit score, but but I still hear it and I still see it. So the, the trick is that with your credit score, it's not keeping the balance on the card and rolling it forward month to month. It's using the card and paying it off. Yep. There isn't any reason to keep a balance on your card and pay interest on the balance if you don't need to. Well, there's 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 one reason you want to help the credit card company out and have less money down <laughs> yeah. the road, right? Like, yeah, that, sure. Or maybe if you're leveraging some, uh, you know, zero percent interest financing and you're doing it, you know, intelligently and, and carefully. But otherwise, for the purpose of your credit score, it's all about really using the card and paying it off. It, it's one of the kind of weird ironies or things that doesn't quite make logical sense with a credit score. There's also the impression that, oh, I never use my credit card. I don't have a balance. Therefore, I have good credit. That's not true either. It's one of these weird things where to have a good credit score, you actually need to use borrowing frequently, but you don't need to use the card to leave a balance on there and pay interest on it. You want to pay it off. The biggest thing that impacts your credit score is demonstrating to the bank, to the credit card company, that you're responsible. The way you demonstrate you're responsible is you use the card and you pay it on time. So that's the single biggest thing that impacts your score. Don't leave a balance on there. Don't accrue the interest. Make sure you pay on time. If you want to see more about how a score is calculated and what goes into it, there's a, a site called MyFICO, F-I-C-O, and there's a link to an article 
on that site called How Scores Are Calculated. It's got good graphics and explains everything you need to know. But certainly leaving a balance, paying interest that you don't need to, or not using a card at all are, are two things that aren't going to help you. Yeah. So item three, and I can't believe we still have to be saying this, is pay off your credit cards monthly. Uh, that's about as easy as it gets. I hesitate to ask if that's three. Is there a four? Not specifically on credit cards, but I do have another one about debt. Okay. And, you know, same concept in thinking about paying things off on a, on a regular basis, you know, making sure that your debt doesn't get out of control or paying interest that you don't need to. But this one's kind of the flip side of that coin. All right. This is the argument that you should pay off all your debt before investing in. So this one's kind of a maybe, right? It's very much dependent on someone's individual circumstances. If you did have, let's say we go go back to the you know prior topic, if you did have a large credit card balance and it was very high interest, I, I think most of us would say it probably would make sense to pay that debt down before committing more capital to investing. But if you look at more common debt that we see our clients and prospects have, their primary mortgage, maybe a secondary mortgage or a line of credit, um, an auto loan or a business loan, then it gets down, I think, a lot more to opportunity cost. You can't just give the blanket statement to every investor, you should pay off your debt before investing. If you have low interest debt, debt that might be tax deductible and you have the opportunity to invest and invest in a way that you can get some tax benefits that has a higher rate of return than that debt that is going to help you meet your goals and the payment of the debt isn't hurting your personal finances at all then that statement doesn't doesn't hold water you know i i look at my personal situation you know we have a uh, an auto loan in my family that we got a few years ago when rates were were low, 1.99 fixed for a few more years. You know the way interest rates have moved, I think I can earn you know over three percent now just in the savings account, not really taking any risk. So think about if I start taking a, a little risk in a portfolio. It's those type of trade offs that I think are really good conversations for people to have with their advisors, kind of look at their whole picture. And it isn't something where that blanket statement holds up. You got to look at your personal circumstances and see what's going on. Yeah. And the calculus is shifting too with rates increasing and also what you can get on cash. And so the regime that we've been in for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years in terms of how low rates have been and uh, has adjusted or and how long that adjustment goes we're not sure. So definitely worth revisiting with a professional in terms of your debt payoff, debt usage plans. Yeah, it's definitely one where talking your circumstances through with an advisor, looking at the whole picture of your investing, your savings, your debt, how those things might change in the future. You know, is there any event happening in the next few years that might provide a uh, you know, surplus of cash. Is there a home sale, a business sale, a bonus, something where you could, you know, put that capital to use? A, a lot of moving parts in any situation. You know, you think about the things we've been talking about with college savings 
or using a retirement plan or business owners, you got to look at the big picture. So that's one where understanding how your debt's going to impact your plan, I think, is more important than thinking about the pay off all your debt before investing mantra doesn't always hold up. And it's important to frame this conversation a little bit. We're talking about the no-brainer things that you're seeing online that you really can't make a strong argument for as a professional and you want people to watch out for them. There's a lot of planning mistakes that you can make based on your situation that when you dive in with your wealth management professional, you can fix and adjust, you know, things like not having an estate plan, enough insurance coverage. But, you know, there's probably not a lot of people out there telling you, hey, don't get life insurance if you have a family, right? So we're talking about the, this is pretty clear you shouldn't do it, but you're seeing people say, yeah, no, you should do it. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem or one of the issues with just blanket advice or, you know, blanket commentary online is that it's possible, it's conceivable that the advice could be good for someone in a certain situation. But just taken as is on the face of it without looking at your own situation, without understanding the tax implications or the estate planning implications or how it varies from, you know, person to person based on the stages in their life. You you have to do that digging. Otherwise, these things just, you know, get applied in the wrong way or, you know, there's opportunity costs or people don't understand the implications of making these choices. They, They just kind of blindly follow the you know, flashing tweet that can't summarize everything because you can't possibly explain it long enough on Twitter. Yep. Any Anything else in, on your list? Well, you know, maybe not keeping me up at night, but sometimes I have to, uh, you know, put my, my palm on my forehead and kind of shake my head. So there, there's a few of those, you know, I hopefully still sleep well, but definitely things that I see and, you know, have to think twice about where is this information coming from? You know, one that I saw recently that we've come across a few times in the last few years is this concept of uh, avoiding taxes on the sale of your home. You know, there, there's a few good ways to reduce taxes on the sale of your home. You know, a couple of just housekeeping measures. You know, one that we've talked about before is just maintaining records of capital improvement. You know, when you sell your house to determine if there's any tax due on a gain, you look at the original purchase price of your home plus money that you put into it over the years to, you know, if you redid your kitchen, if, um, you know, you added an addition, if you put in a fence, you put in a pool, you know, keeping track of those things can help lower what the gain would otherwise be. But the one that there is a very strong kind of vocal um, support for somewhat erroneously online is this idea of using a 1031 exchange. 1031 exchange, it's part of the tax code, and it does let someone take a property that has a gain on it where tax would be due and exchange that property for another one to delay the tax. Basically, you sell one property, you kind of roll your proceeds and and your gain into this new property, and you defer the taxation. So if you had a property that seemed like it was a good time to sell it, there was a good deal, you wanted to move it into another piece of real estate, you could do that and avoid the taxation on it. But those circumstances are really designed only for investment properties. 
this isn't something that you can do with your primary residence and just delay the game. You used to be able to a long time ago, decades ago, the tax law did allow you to do that, but not anymore. Where kind of the, the worst conversations, in, in my opinion, are occurring in this space are related to second homes and vacation homes and the idea that you can easily go back and forth between picking which house is your primary residence and picking which house is your vacation home or renting it out and then doing one of these exchanges easily and you keep doing that back and forth and avoiding the taxes. Big picture, it's conceivable that you might be able to use a 1031 exchange to defer the gain on a property that you've previously used for your primary residence, or maybe a second home that wasn't always an investment property. But the options are pretty limited. It gets really complicated. There's many restrictions. There's timeline requirements. You have to use a qualified intermediary. In 2004, Congress tightened up some of the rules again on this to try to crack down on people who are kind of taking advantage of it. The idea that you can use a 1031 exchange to avoid taxes on the sale of your home is plausible, but much harder and I think not nearly as likely to happen as what you would think if you searched for this concept online. That's my key takeaway. Got it. Nope, that's a good one. And uh, you went in depth there, but I think it was important to understand the history of this idea. And you, you know, you, you gave some caveats as to where it possibly could could still apply. You know, winding down this conversation, Ed, do you have any last quick hitters uh, on mistakes that, that you want to get through? Yeah, we can do two quick ones that I think are, are relevant. Kind of wrap up the conversation. One is about charitable giving. You know, th this is a, a, a quick one in the sense that if there are charitable entities that you want to support because there's a cause that you believe in or because there's something in your community or social circle or something you're otherwise engaged in that you think deserves the support, you should do it because you're enjoying contributing to the charity and that the charity can make good use out of the, the money that you're, you're donating to it. You shouldn't give stuff away for a tax deduction. It's an ancillary benefit. There's a lot of good planning that goes around tax deductions and maximizing tax deductions for charitable gifts, but the tax deduction shouldn't be the primary driver. If you give money away, if you give investments away, even though you get a tax deduction, you're still giving more of something away that you can't use yourself. So don't let the tax benefits drive the, the decision too much. We can do a lot of great planning around it, but it, it shouldn't be the reason you, you give stuff away. The other one that I'll leave with is probably one we could do a whole separate conversation on because it can get really complex and there's a whole industry supporting it and pushing it. And that's the improper or the misguided use of life insurance. Life insurance is an absolute necessity for a lot of our clients, for family protection, for income protection, to really make sure that you can meet your goals if there was a premature death, if income was lost. 
And there's really good cost-effective ways to meet those needs. You can use life insurance for other complex planning, like business owners, to help fund buy-sell agreements. So there's a lot of other creative uses for life insurance. But one that we see kind of pushed and sold that I think is oversold and also misunderstood is kind of the concept that you can use life insurance as a all-encompassing, best of every world. It'll do everything for you. It will meet your income replacement needs for your family, and you can use it for investing, and you can borrow against it when you need cash, and you can use it to fund college, and, 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 and. And it's when life insurance is kind of put into place with this very uh, broad, um, optimistic outlook, and I think sometimes oversold, that people don't understand that when you set up life insurance that way, you don't always realize that the consequences down the road, if the life insurance doesn't perform the way you thought, you might need to pay greater premiums than you realize. You might need to pay premiums longer. You might not be able to borrow or take cash out the way you thought. There might be income tax consequences if you take money out of the life insurance. And if you start to have to adjust those plans and change the designs, it can be very costly to replace it. And you might not be able to meet all those goals that the life insurance was designed to do. So there's a lot to that. Like I said, it could be a whole other conversation about a lot of the things that we've seen historically, a lot of kind of the issues that we uncover when we analyze life insurance policies. But that's one that I kind of leave as just more of a big picture takeaway that to the extent that anyone's seeing the, you know, life insurance can do everything sort of marketing online. It's one of these ones where there is truth to it. There's bits and pieces of it that absolutely make sense, but there's probably a lot more consequences or unintended consequences than what you see on the surface. And I think that's a big one. And we, we can leave it there because otherwise, well, you and I can keep going and going and going talking on these topics. But those ones that we just talked about now, you know, covers a lot of bases with retirement planning, college savings, managing your credit, managing your debt, property, tax deductions, and, you know, thinking about life insurance. But I think that's a lot for one conversation, Sammy. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty happy that we were touched on all that today. Absolutely. That's a great list. Thank you for sharing it. And it builds upon a theme that uh, we've had on the podcast recently, where we're talking about kind of understanding your messenger's agenda. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So figuring out how to parse it and interpret it. Uh, for those of you who are interested in, in diving into this a little bit more, our September 12th podcast, September Market Update, A New Direction, Bob Weiss and I ended the conversation with talking about sources of investment information that we respect and follow and ones that we would recommend, you know, being a little apprehensive about. Also a post on the bostonadvisor.com called Understand Your Your Messenger's Agenda if you're interested in diving into this a bit further. So Ed, what's you know, as we wrap up, you know, a couple questions. One, what's one thing you want people to take away from this conversation today? I think what I said early on you know, with our first topic, I mentioned flexibility. You know, we don't know what the future is going to bring, whether we are talking about 
you know, tax code or the state taxes or your individual career or your family. So having flexibility in a financial plan and setting yourself up so that you have options, I think is really important. You know, we say here at, at Heritage and, you know, amongst ourselves that we want our clients to have, you know, a lot of tools in their toolbox or as advisors, we want to be able to use a lot of different tools in the toolkit. You know, it's a saying that I think gets worn out, but I think it's true. So when we look at, you know, all of these different pieces of advice, good or bad, what's true, what's partially true, I think a lot of it comes back to having a good conversation with an advisor about your goals, your needs, what's specific to you, and making sure that whatever choices we make, if they're irrevocable or if they're big decisions that have big consequences or opportunity costs, we think about what all of those are and we think about do we still have flexibility to change course if we need to down the road. That That's a takeaway that I think I'd really like to get across. I think it makes sense for all these topics. Absolutely well said. And I think you absolutely did get it across. And since the name of our podcast is called Wealthy Behavior, what's the best piece of financial advice you've ever received? What's one wealthy behavior that you practice that you would recommend to others? It's tough to get it out there nowadays, but I think the mantra of kind of living below your means, just I don't think there's anything else across every aspect of personal finance that rings more true than that. You know, in, in your book, you know, you touch upon it in regards to, you know, looking at how much house you can afford. And I, I think personally, you know, looking at how much capital you allocate to, you know, your biggest asset or at least one of your biggest assets and the costs involved with maintenance and property taxes and utilities and everything else. I, I think that's the big one. You know, living below your means, you know, not to the point of being a, a pauper, but just reasonably enough you've got the flexibility in your plan, you've, you've got some room to breathe, you know, you're comfortable and applying that, you know, m mostly to your house, at, at least for me. And I think seeing it in other people that are comfortable in their personal finances, that that's one that really rings true. And, and we've got that a, a few times so far. And, and I think it's a testament to how important it is, not to how unoriginal our guests are. So uh, it's it's extremely important. And you referenced uh, the book. The book that you referenced was Beyond the Basics, Maximizing, Allocating, and Protecting Your Capital. You can find information about the book on heritagefinancial.net. Thank you, Ed, for having this conversation with us. Thank you for listening today. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments and questions. If you have any, please send them to wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakadis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.